Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. User interfaces are difficult to get right, especially for developers. While the nitty-gritty details are better left to a design podcast, there are some simple rules that developers can keep in mind when building UI and UX. While not perfect, they will get you a long way. In this episode, we're going to discuss some things you can do to help make your UIs generally less terrible. While they're no replacement for a designer or a UX professional, they can get you by in a pinch until you have one. But before we get started, Will, what have you been designing lately? Well, we had a total of 15 people at the house uh, Saturday night. And I cooked lasagna from scratch, uh, sourdough bread from scratch. I made you know the apple crisp that I, I make, although I've improved that recipe over the years. I don't think you've had it since you know, some time. No. Uh, the pies I used to make in college, remember those? The really easy ones? Oh, yeah. They, like, let me see if I remember all the ingredients. Uh, whipped cream. Yep. Kool-Aid. And pie crust, graham cracker crust, and sweetened condensed milk that you mix. With ah, the yeah, sweetened condensed milk. That's where it gets yeah. the sweetness. All right, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's you know four ingredients, forty-five seconds. You've made a pie. And you just got to put it in chill. So it's really easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I did roasted mushrooms covered with parmesan. Mm. I'm trying to remember what else, but yeah, I was I was in the kitchen all day and well, part of Friday night as well uh, because I started trying to get ahead on the bread. It didn't go well. I think I forgot to drop the salt in. Uh, oh. But like when it was baking, I wasn't really paying attention early on because I was trying to get other stuff together. And like dough fell off onto the heating element. And yeah. Mm-hmm. So I like had to open the front and the back door at like midnight to try to get air blowing through to get the smoke out of the house. Yep. Um, I had more problems with that same dough Saturday when I was cooking. So it was it was interesting. But, you know, everything went well. Uh, you know, people couldn't tell how bad of a screw up I was by the end. That's the way it goes with cooking, though. You know, you yeah, you do all the work and nobody really knows what went into it. Yeah. And how <laughs> how much of a foul up you are when you do it. So, yeah, but it, was, it was pretty good and would have probably been wiser to have eaten something before I had the first glass of wine since I hadn't mm-hmm. eaten since dinner the night before. But, you know, we all learn over and over. I was like, you've learned that lesson a few few times, haven't you? You know? Uh, Yeah. Just want to reinforce it. You know, it's like. Oh, you need, you definitely need that reinforced. This is basically like Anki cards for (laughs) proper behavior for me. (laughs) Space repetition. How about you? (laughs) So uh, Sunday was Mother's Day, which was fun. Uh, I um, had three photographers, including myself and a videographer uh, at church running around doing stuff. Uh, We had a photo booth outside, which poses its own challenges while it was not bad weather. The lighting kept changing between photos. 
And so I was constantly making adjustments to my camera. It was actually kind of fun, but definitely challenging. So uh, I was out there. Uh, and then, of course, we had people after church. Normally, we don't take photos after service, but we had people after church who wanted to, uh, after our second service, I should say, who wanted to get photos at the photo booth. So I was out there till probably, I guess, about noon. We get out at 1130. So it was maybe about 10 afternoon when I left. So it wasn't too bad. But uh, then I had my uh, my mom and aunt and uncle come over and uh, we grilled burgers. So, which was fun. Earlier this week, I had had uh, the worship team over for a luau where I grilled burgers as well, and uh, so that was that was a lot of fun. Been been using the grill, got the bike out some this weekend, so it was it was pretty good, pretty relaxing weekend. So it was that was nice. I, I know we're only doing one thing, but I have one one thing to say just because it relates to something you talked about last week, I think. But. Uh, so I talked to my boss yesterday and I've been doing the uh, the Azure 204, like prepping for that. And uh, after talking to you about doing the, uh, you're doing the AWS fundamentals before doing the developer one. Yeah, I'm actually doing the developer one now about the uh, course for that and for the architect yesterday. Yeah. So I was talking to my boss about it and I was like, I was telling her about some of the stuff we talked about. And I was like, I kind of want to do the, the fundamentals before jumping into the more detailed, difficult developer one. And so I, I watched one of the, like the intro video to it on plural site and I was telling her all that's in there. And she's like, all right, do it. It's like, tell me how it goes. Cause we may have other people do it. Yeah. I think that's probably a better approach for one. You get a, you get a win. And the other thing it's, it's something that you can get value out of quickly. Yeah that justifies the other. Exactly. Saving money is hard, especially when you're buying certification courses right and left. That's where I was going to go with it too. So that was nice. Yeah, thought so. Lucas Casadas is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, he focuses on helping you to not only establish a real long-term plan, but also to take action on that plan so that you could create the life you want to live. Because investing in financial planning services, well, it really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances. With the help of Level Up, the compounding impact of making better financial decisions will easily pay for itself. Level Up has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. And best of all, Lucas is a fiduciary for his clients. What that means is he's not here to sell you a product, but to help guide you to a better financial solution. So if you want that better financial situation, catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics that you probably face and there he also interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their own careers. And you can learn even more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. For a lot of developers, user interfaces are one of the most irritating parts of software development. Not only do you have to support a broad range of device types, different levels of user knowledge, and a variety of workflows, but any mistake you make can send hordes of angry users to your company's support phone line. Becomes a 
delicate balancing act, especially as you learn more about the problem domain in your app. You may need to restructure elements of your user interface, change the way you present information, or even drastically disrupt user workflow to accommodate these changes. However, you need to make sure that those changes don't disrupt active work by the people who are trying to use the system just to get their jobs done. Yeah. And if you have a designer or product owner with some knowledge of UX, then they absolutely have to be part of this process. However, many developers are not so lucky, either permanently or temporarily, and they either have no design help whatsoever, or they have a designer who's just completely overloaded and will get to them when they get there, usually after the work is done. The latter you know, end up coming in kind of late, and they start suggesting changes, and then you have to implement those changes. Uh, the changes tend to be fairly sweeping, and that means a lot of disruptive rework of your system and redesign, restructuring, those kind of things. And that's absolutely nothing compared to what happens to the users when developers make UI changes. Mm -hmm. While change is often disruptive, in fact, that's probably one of the dictionary definitions of disruption is just sudden change. It doesn't always have to be so disruptive that people will walk away from your software in disgust. In this episode, we're going to discuss some very general design thoughts that you should be considering when building software for other people without the aid of a real professional designer. While not perfect, the ideas we're suggesting here are basically a collection of ways in which you can avoid making your software difficult to use. If you are lucky... Following these principles can mean that later changes proposed by a designer are more about the look and feel rather than massive reworkings of an already stable system. At the end of the day, the goal is to respect your users' time and attention while still delivering the features that they need. Remember that we went decades with ugly, hard-to-use applications being very common. Application design at a broad scale wasn't like it is now. Even just 10 years ago, we used to have to do a lot of it ourselves. And a lot of people still do. In short, this episode kind of fits with our theme of resilience by helping you survive the lack of professional UX help for a while. So we'll start off with the first point, and this is to use a familiar skew morph if you can, or at least make your system intuitive. Now, a lot of people probably don't know what a skew morph is, so we'll talk about that. The Wikipedia definition is that a skew morph is a derivative object that retains ornamental design cues or attributes from structures that were necessary in the original. An example of this would be the media player layout in virtually every digital environment that you deal with, right? It's got play buttons. It's got all the stuff that a typical media player would have had back in the cassette tape days even. And there's the buttons are structured the same kind of way. That's so that it's familiar when you look at it and you go, oh, I know what this is. Because that's what your early media players had to do because people had CD players. And before that, they had tape players. And before that, they had eight track players. And before that, they had record players. That's like the, uh, the joke of... Uh someone uh, 
had an old uh, floppy, like the hard floppy. And uh kid asked, like, why'd you 3D print the save button? You know, because that icon was designed specifically to look like that because that's what you were doing. Right. And then how long has it been since you've seen a, uh, a box of floppy disks? I mean, I think I have one here somewhere, so it's probably been a year. But yeah, I mean, that's a skewmorph at this point. It's, or it's part of one. So while skewmorphs are great for certain types of work, they aren't available everywhere. And so you don't want to try to force one when it's not really necessary. Yeah, like if you're having to think about what a good skewmorph for your design is, that probably means you shouldn't use one. Because either you don't know it well enough or there isn't a good one mm-hmm. for that thing. Now, if you can't skewmorph, which is most of us most of the time, then you need to just make your system intuitive and consistent with the host operating system and consistent with what your users are used to. Yeah. You don't want to have your buttons, your like exit and your close and minimize and stuff buttons on the right hand side of the thing if it's a app that's going for a, a Mac. Right. Because it's going to be like, and I've seen this where it was something that got ported over from Windows and it was so weird. Yep. Yeah. And so next, keep the user from taking destructive action unless they really, really understand and mean to do it. You know, before taking any destructive action, you must have a confirmation. Yeah, and it's it's weird how many people, even professional software developers who should know better, uh, will do this. Or how often you see it even in dev tools, for that matter. And then you go, oh, what? That's especially uh, command line tools are bad about this, right? Because they just assume that, oh yeah, you meant to do that. You're not confirming. It's like, well, yeah, but I'm I'm a dummy who's not good at bash. Like sometimes, I, you know, I don't do smart things. And you have to be really careful when you do this and clarify exactly what the user is trying to do or how your system is interpreting their action versus them just assuming they're correct. So you don't want to ask something like, "Do you want to delete this?" You want to instead ask something like, do you want to delete C colon backslash program files? If that's what they're trying to delete, obviously you're going to have a little bit more trouble there. But uh, in other words, you want to make it clear so you don't use just like built-in text strings that are just a constant for this kind of thing. Um, And by the way, this has design implications when you start looking at internationalization as well. uh, Just so you know. Try to build in functionality for undoing any destructive actions as well. Users will eventually, they're going to ignore your warnings and they're going to, they're going to still think they're doing the right thing. Sometimes like, I mean, we get all sorts of pop-ups all the time and 90% of them are things you just like click to go away. And then there's that 10% that you're like, Oh, whoops. I didn't want that. I mean, I, this is a universal human tendency. I, I had a friend years ago who had a car that was a hybrid. And by hybrid, I mean it burnt oil and gas. 
and the car would, the check engine light would come on all the time. So it got to the point where he ignored it. Well, at some point, the fact that it burned oil uh, caught up with him. So he was out a good 500 bucks for what that car was worth by that point because it was, it was a piece of crap. But that was probably, probably illustrates a universal human tendency, right? Like that's the thing he needs to get to work and he's still ignoring warnings from it. So you can guarantee that when he's at work, he's probably ignoring warnings too. And everybody does that. Next. Use intuitive linking between related elements of the design. If a user is filling in a form in your application and there is a value that you need to look up, let them add a new value to the list if they can without navigating away from the actual form. Yeah, I've seen this so many times where developers will build a system that is kind of structured around the underlying database. and they build the form that's whatever the you know user has to enter, and there's some supporting piece of data, some lookup thing. Well, the user doesn't have it, and so they fill it in the form, and they got to stop, and they can't add it right there. They got to go navigate to another form. They got to lose all the stuff they put in this one. They got to put that thing in. Then they got to come back, re-enter their stuff, and then they find that oh hey, there's another lookup they've got to fill in, and you know they have to do it again. Like that's extremely uh, error prone. It frustrates users and it, it really makes apps painful to use, even if everything else is nice. And this is still something you see in 2022 in a lot of places. Now, the main thing here is to avoid interrupting somebody's stream of thought while they're trying to do something just because your business logic requires the entry of some other data. Like your business logic is your problem. You need to help the user overcome your business logic to get stuff done. Right, like it's not something imposed on the user, it's something to help the user. So next, have a consistent design system. You want to make certain that a user can intuitively grasp the purpose of a design element in one part of the system by using their experience in another part of the system. Yeah, I've worked on systems where we had developers who just constantly fiddled with things. And so you went to one part of the app and you would see a form that was laid out completely differently than anything else in the app. And you go to a different part and that one's different too. And when you do this, you're basically putting a learning curve in front of everything that you're trying to, you know, to make work for that user. It also, um, it sounds like this conflicts with the idea of making changes slowly, which we kind of have, have hinted at before. But the idea here is that when you design elements in your system, you design an element and you change it throughout the system. You change the thing that does that one thing versus going, okay, I'm going to do it a page at a time. It needs to be a type of element at a time so that consistency is maintained across the app, even if it's ugly for a little bit. If that makes sense, because otherwise you confuse your users because you're doing it two different ways. Yeah, checking for design consistency needs to be part of your QA process. And design decisions need to be documented for developers and QA. Because I've run into a problem where we had a QA, nice lady, but she had been not a designer, but like uh, kind of UXE type. Yeah, UXE type, a web administrator. 
And so she had done some UX stuff. And so she would throw bugs based on like design that were not like, it's like we, we would have to be like, hey, this isn't a bug. And we actually had to change our processes so that we could say, hey, this is not a bug. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is what the user asked for. And if you don't like the de- the design or you think it needs to change, that is not a bug. That is a feature. Yeah. You need to write a story for it, not a bug, because it's not broken. We like had some like really deep conversations and ended up like she became a really great QA. But at the time it was like her first time being a QA. So like she was just like, well, this doesn't flow uh, the way it should. So send it back. It's like, no, that's not that's not how this works. Well, I mean, at work, we have our stuff really, really heavily documented. And so I can look and I can go, how does a button need to work? How does it's not just, you know, hey, here's a click. It's like, here's how you do the wording on the button. You know, here's how you do the size. Here's how you do the positioning. Here's our button colors for different kinds of actions. Right. So if it's destructive, you use one color. If it's you know something else, you use a different one. And I mean, they really, really get down into the weeds on this. And when developers have a question on something, they go, okay, let's look at the docs. And they go, oh, this isn't here. Put it there. Like we're going to make a decision. It's in the documents from now on. And man, you talk like it sounds like it's just overdoing it on process, but holy crap, does it make it a lot easier for everybody? And they officially document it in a design tool. So you can actually pull CSS and all that kind of stuff out of there too. So it's, it's super duper powerful when you do it right. Now, if you don't have a designer and you're not a designer, that doesn't mean you can't do this, right? Like you can lay this stuff out. And when a designer takes over, then they take that stuff and run with it. Cause that's now the easiest place for them to do the thing that helps you. So you know, make that happen. Now, I will say that an ugly but consistent design, uh, especially ugly but consistent design system, is often better than a beautiful but confusing one, uh, at least as far as users getting things done. People have put up with very ugly software for years. It's not ideal, but as opposed to confusing them, it's still better, right? Because now you can just fix the parts that are ugly versus going, hey, we're changing people's workflow every time we're doing something. If you're a software engineer, you've been there. It's 9 p.m. You're finally unwinding from work. And then your phone buzzes with an alert. Something's broken and your mind is already racing at what could be wrong. Did I introduce a bug in my last deploy? Is it the server? Is it the network? Is it global? Is it back end? Is it front end? You don't know. Do we have a slow running query? Now the whole team is scrambling from tool to tool and messaging person after person to find and fix the issue. That won't happen if you get New Relic. New Relic combines 16 different monitoring products that you'd normally buy separately. So engineering teams can see across their entire software stack in just one place. More importantly, you can pinpoint issues down to the line of code so you know exactly why the problem happened and can resolve it quickly. That's why the dev and ops teams at companies such as DoorDash, GitHub, Epic Games, and more than 14,000 other companies use New Relic to debug and improve their software. Whether you run a cloud-native startup or a Fortune 500 company, it takes just five minutes to set up New Relic in your environment. That next 9 p.m. call is just waiting to happen. Get New Relic before it does. 
and you get access to the whole New Relic platform and 100 gigabytes of data free forever. No credit card required. Sign up at newrelic.com slash CDP. That's N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C dot com slash CDP. One more time for those in the back, newrelic.com slash CDP. So next, you want to keep it as simple as possible, but no simpler. You know, you want it to... If you need complexity, that complexity should be there, but you don't want to have complexity that doesn't need to be there. If some process within a system has a lot of options, but most users don't use most of those options, then have an advanced mode that hides the less used options. Uh, I know we do, um, we have a search that uh, we built, and there's like three basics. And then you click the thing and it's a side nav that slides over and you get like this huge list of them. Yeah, that's a whole lot better because this allows users to be more quickly successful with your system earlier while allowing your power users to continue to work. Yeah. And it doesn't like intimidate the new people when they come in. That's the main takeaway there. Yeah. So whatever you do, don't simplify features more than is actually reasonable based on metrics of how the features are used. You know, a solution that works perfectly for 80% of the user population and doesn't work at all for the other 20%, that's really not going to help you. And this is like for your users. Right. Like it's not the, you know, the global population where you go, oh, well, I don't, I'm, I'm not trying to sell software to everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Where you just cut them out. It's like, these are your existing users of your system. And if you make it impossible for them, they will leave. Mm-hmm. They're not going to readjust their workflow and go work double, basically, because you changed your system. They're just going to get a different system. Now, you also need to give feedback on user actions. So when somebody does something in the system, something should happen. It shouldn't be, they click a button and then nothing happens. And then 30 seconds later, it pops up and goes, thank you for you know, buying our product, right? Because they'll click 1,500 times in that 30 seconds. Um, So when users click a button, initiate a process, those kind of things, there needs to be an immediate visual feedback that they've done something. Otherwise, people will think that the system is hung, that they missed a click. Basically, what this will do is it will make them do things multiple times, make them uh, not visualize the system as being stable or fast. Like it makes your system look slow you get a whole lot of more positive reviews from people when you go, yep, I'm starting the process. Here's a display of it. Even if you run that same process slower than somebody who doesn't give that feedback because they don't know that the process actually started with those other people. Yeah. And I will tell you one of the the simplest things, it's always frustrates me because I, I know how website, like I know how to build a site, but like when you, when you go and, down at the bottom, it says, you know, right above the confirm or the buy button or whatever, it says, you know, don't click more than once. And I'm like, why don't you just disable the... Don't let me. Yeah, disable the button. That's really easy to do. Like, I can do that in vanilla JavaScript. It's not that hard. <laughs> don't swim with the crocodiles. Yeah. You know, at the zoo. How about, like, put bars up? Yeah, yeah. It's like, what? That's... I mean... 
Yeah, that one's always frustrated me because I'm like, well, if that, if one, if your API is not resilient enough to realize, hey, you've got multiple transactions coming in back to back. If you haven't designed that well enough, you can at least disable the button so that you can't do that. I mean, that's one of the first things we do in all of our front-end development is you build a button and you add the disable to it. Yeah. Like, I don't not do that. The junior developer, well, now I've got a um, mid-level developer who got promoted, but, uh, you know, the the developers I have, both of them know better than to do that. Uh, I mean, most students know better than that. (laughs) And I get why people sometimes have problems with that because, like, back in the day, it was hard. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was way harder to keep from screwing things up because your UI thread, you know, your UI ran on one thread. And so if you wanted to do something async, you had to spin off another thread and you had to deal with communication between the two and synchronization. And there was a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. Now it's a lot easier than it used to be. And so there's really not an excuse for you know doing it any other way. Well, I mean, good grief with this, even if it's, like I said, just disabling the button. You could do that on a single thread. You disable the button, and then the next yep. step is to do whatever action you're doing. Right. Of course, then you can't move the window or do anything else, right? Because that's on the UI thread, too. Well, yeah, um, but yeah, I'm just saying, like you know. Real single-threaded, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it's always going to be worth doing this just so the users don't screw stuff up. You know, it's like, yeah, great. Your system is idempotent and it handles all this stuff, but the user is frustrated and they're clicking on a button trying to make something happen. Mm-hmm. And they're going to remember that emotion more than they remember anything else. So yeah, it is it is super important, especially in like by processes. Now this also imp- implies something else, and that is that if the process is long running, then you need to give some indication of how much longer it will take and or progress, you know, as it's going along, uh, as well as notifying the user when the task actually completes. Now, depending on what you're doing, this can be much more complex than you think especially if there's no easy way to accurately estimate how long something will take. It's like a Windows file copy that whatever time is displayed is how much time it's not taking. Like that's the one point in in like a time span that it is not going to take is whatever they projected. That's true. That's very true. All right, guys. So finally, consider people who are different than you. You know, we shouldn't have to say this in 2022, but we do. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, right? Yeah. Um, it, different cultures view things in really, really different ways. And that's that's the thing most people think about. Or, mm-hmm. And that does impact everything from the skew morphs that you use, the colors, uh, and the wording that you use. There are certain words, even in English, that you know you might use in one context with one group of people and they'll understand. And if you say it somewhere else, it means something completely different and you just ticked a bunch of people off. Oh yeah. Like bless your heart in the South. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. No, like when traveling on mission trips, that's one of the things that, uh, that we definitely go over. I know going to English speaking countries specifically, they give us a list of, Hey, these are phrases that we say over here that you can't say over there. And there are phrases that they say over there that would be like... Yeah, like Australia. 
Like we just got greeted in Australia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like really offensive over here, but like the term isn't offensive there. It means something different. Like, yeah. Or it's just taken different. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, you know, just, just all around. Um, but yeah, like, uh, you know, again, the, uh, the way that things get phrased in Australia over here. Ooh, <laughs> cause I've seen that one happen a few times. And I would imagine there's something that we say over there. I just don't know what it is. Oh, well, I don't know about that, but I do know, speaking of Australia specifically, the term under the weather, which means sick over here in Australia, apparently means, it either means drunk or hungover, I think depending on context. But uh, yeah, so uh, my dad, when I was growing up, he was a preacher and uh, we had a guy from Australia uh, he ended up being my Sunday school teacher for several years, but uh, his first Sunday at the church, my dad was sick, and someone got up and said, "Our preacher is a little bit under the weather this morning, so brother so and so is going to speak." And oh my goodness, he almost fell on the floor laughing, like trying to <laughs> yeah. hold it in, not laugh out loud because he knew the cultural difference. But he just like, you know, it was like right after he'd moved over, and so yeah, I was too young to to know about that, but he told that story later and I was like, oh, that is amazing. I love that. I will never forget that. Um, Yeah, well, in addition to the cultural thing, you also have to think about background. Tech is very, very heavily drawn from certain cultural backgrounds of various sorts and doesn't draw from other ones. And that's true even if you, you don't consider international boundaries or anything like that, right? Like there is a social and economic class that, tends to have most of the developers in the U S even if you just consider the Americans. Mm-hmm. And this is something to really, really bear in mind because it's a, it's a big deal. And you know, there's things like expertise as well. Like not everybody has a computer science background, including the other developers on your team, by the way. But when you make a, you know, you make a tool for them and, and you write something out in some computer science way, you may confuse people just with an internal tool. Mm-hmm. Not everybody grew up speaking English. So if you use certain, you know, idiomatic speech, you know, they translate it into their language and they're like, this doesn't make sense. What are you talking about? Right? We say all kinds of very, very strange things when we, you know, if you translate it, the, it doesn't work. And you, you learn this learning a foreign language where they're like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people also just can't tell the difference between, you know, subtle UI shading differences. That's an, another great example. Like, you know, just like actual, not disability, but just like they can't see well. And some people just don't see colors in those different shades. Like I, I work with a guy, he's like, don't put me on the UI because like blue looks blue to me. He's like, I don't see the differences between different shades. So like, man, that must be be horrible. I do. And I don't have them all memorized like some people, but I can tell the fine subtleties and it's kind of, you know, I don't know. It's nice. There probably is a chunk of the color spectrum you can't, though. Yeah, yeah. And you don't know what it is because it's just not used much. Mm -hmm. So also, guys, you need to carefully consider how your app behaves when used with assistive technology. There's whole companies built around testing this for you, too, which is really cool. Yeah, the best looking UX in the world isn't going to be very useful to a blind customer uh, unless it works with their screen reader. Yeah, and this was a problem with a lot of early JavaScript frameworks because they're like, hey, we're going to make it look nice in the browser. And then you get like governmental organizations and 
charities and those kind of things that have like the, um, I forget what the, the number is it 508. Oh, I know this. I've gone through training on it, but I don't remember. Yeah. But yeah, I can't remember it off the top of my head either because it's, you know, it's late on a Tuesday, but those standards were not observed as carefully in some of the early frameworks and it bit a lot of people. You're going to run into this all over the place. Like if you don't test for this kind of stuff, you will build a system that people cannot use. And it's some of the most vulnerable members of our society. Mm -hmm. So guys, design is a real profession and you really need to have a real professional working with you when you're trying to do UX UI type stuff. That said, for various reasons, sometimes that just isn't possible. Until it is, you need to get by as well as you can with whatever design skills are available on your development team. And you probably do actually have some. If you are really, really sure you don't, somebody probably has some better than you at least. While this isn't perfect, it is better than nothing. Mainly what you want to do is design your system well enough that your users don't hate you while making sure that you can still accommodate future growth. The thought processes we listed in this podcast episode will help you with that. And in the aftercast, we're going to discuss a little bit more about how to roll out a UX change from a managerial level so that you don't disrupt your users' work. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.